welcome, ladies and gentlemen. My name is David Gregg. I'm a playwright, and um, we're here to speak today and hear from Raja Shahada uh, talk about his new book, Palestinian Walks, Notes on a Vanishing Landscape. It's great, really great, to see so many of you here, particularly on such a glorious day, the first day of the summer, it feels like. Um, it's the sort of day you feel like uh, we should just get up and get out and go on a walk, a long walk in the hills. I'm sure that's something that um, Raja can talk about later on. Um, Raja Shahada is a Palestinian human rights lawyer um, who uh, has a long history uh, in legal affairs in Palestine. He, he as well as being a, a lawyer with Al-Haq Human Rights uh, Agency, he also was part of the Palestinian legal team advising the delegation at the peace talks in Washington in 1992. Um, as well as that, he was uh, part of the legal team advising in The Hague in the Palestinian case against the, uh, uh, the, 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 the dividing wall in Palestine in 2005. He is also, though, however, and more pertinently for today, an author, the author, first of all, of a memoir called Strangers in the House, which described his youth and his relationship with his father. Um, a memoir of the uh, Israeli incursion and invasion of Ramallah called When the Bulbul Stopped Singing, which some of you may be familiar with, not only as a, as a book, but because um, it was made into a play uh, it, it, at the Travis Theatre in the Edinburgh Festival in 2005, um, I, w which I worked on with Raja, and it was an a very successful production and has since been seen in a number of uh, cities around the world and, I, I, and is currently, in fact, being performed in a different production in North Carolina. And today he, we're here to talk about Palestinian Walks, which is a, a, a book which collects together um, Raja's uh, thoughts and experiences of different walks through uh, in, in the in the in the hills, uh, particularly of Palestine and particularly around Ramallah, um, over the past two decades, and the way in which that landscape has changed um, in all sorts of important ways. Uh, for me, Raja's a, a truthful, insightful, and always surprising author. The thing I notice about Raj is that his work so patiently dismantles whatever preconceived ideas you might have about the land in which he lives um, and the conflict uh, uh, which he is so unwillingly a part of. Um, he writes about Palestine, of course, but what I think we will all discover today as well is that he, his work um, is rises above the specific to become more generally and more universally about the human desire and need for uh, space, space to write, space to think and space to walk. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Raj is going to read a little bit from his book, Ladies and Gentlemen, Raj Shahada. Thank you, David. I want to start by thanking all of you for being here, leaving the glorious sun outside. I also want to express thanks to two individuals. The first is Andrew Franklin, my publisher, friend, and fellow walker. We had a lovely walk last week in the uh, uh, near uh, Loch uh, Tula. I want to thank him for the good advice he gave me throughout the years. I also want to thank Catherine Lockerbie for her support over the years and for her great management of this great book festival and the opportunity to launch my book today at this festival. I think the word launch is, is a bit strange. I always feel like throwing the book up in, with a pigeon. Uh, the um, section I would like to read to you is from the second walk. And the second walk is a, a walk from Ramallah to the village of Ain Qinya. Uh, it's the walk in which I describe uh, the, uh, one of the uh, land cases that I took, a seminal case which 
I won and lost. Won because I was able to prove that the land was indeed private land. Lost because despite proving that the land was private land, it, the, it was still taken over and a settlement was built on it. Uh, the particular area which, uh, in which the, the scene I'm going to read takes place, uh, many other things throughout the book happen in that particular area. Uh, I, I was walking there and noticed the, many fossils, some of which had been used to build the terrace walls. So I stopped to, to examine uh, more carefully. I had ventured into a fascinating area. Not far from the terrace wall, tall as an altar, I saw a large rock that seemed out of place as though it had fallen from on high. It was cracked in a number of places. I rested my elbows on it and examined it more closely. The sun was striking it at a 30 degree angle. Engraved in the rock were two elongated lobes, one on each side, with a long mound-like with a mound like a giant toe between them. The whole thing was over a meter in length. At first, I thought these shapes must have been made by water running down the rock over many years. But why would the water make circular groves? I had once seen pictures of dinosaur footprints. The similarity here was striking. I lifted my eyes and tried to imagine an enormous animal standing with one foot over this rock, its head almost reaching the top of the hill overlooking Ramallah. How brief a moment is given to us to be here on earth. And how beautiful was that moment then with the hills all spread out before me, not submerged underwater, not dominated by enormous animals, but full of wonderful treasures. Before moving away from this rock, I made sure to remember its location. Several terraces down from the pine trees, halfway between the top of the hill and the valley in a field full of the common thistle called nettish, potarium thorn, which was likely used to make the crown of thorns worn by Christ. Nettish is as plentiful in these hills as heather in the Scottish Highlands. Both are tenacious plants with strong roots. In winter, nettish acquires thick, narrow leaves that conserve water. The fields are full of many green mounds, not unlike porcupines. As the dry summer months advance, the leaves eventually dry up and fall off, leaving humps of wiry mesh that farmers sometimes cut and use as a broom to clean coarse surfaces of pebbles and stones. It's also used to drain water and because of its elasticity as a substitute for a spring mattress by people who are sleeping out in the open. In Arabic, the word natasha means to pluck, hence the name of the weed extractor mintash. In Israeli military courts, this weed has gained great popularity. Never has a weed been more exploited and politicized not least by Danny Kramer, the legal advisor to the Israeli military government responsible for expropriating Palestinian land for Jewish settlements. Danny's eyes would pop out if he should visit this hill. He knew few Arabic words. Netish was one of them. How often have, had I heard him stand up before the judge in the military court and declare, but your honor, the land is full of Netish. I saw it with my own eyes. Meaning, what more proof could anyone want that the land was uncultivated and therefore public land that the Israeli settlers could use as their own? The other hero of the settlement project whom I had heard a lot about but never met was Rabbi Cook. He once described to his disciples how his identification with the land was so total that he felt his own body torn. It was not clear whether or not the land in question was replete with netish. Surely not. He was speaking metaphorically of much more profound things. 
It was the night of 14 May 1967, just before the war that resulted in the occupation of the Palestinian territories, the eve of Israel's Independence Day, and the anniversary of the UN resolution that gave the state its legal standing. As he delivered his sermon, he began to shout, and his body was rocked by grief. He was recalling the announcement in 1947, 20 years earlier, when the UN decided to partition Palestine into a Jewish and an Arab state. While the Jews in Palestine danced in the streets, the rabbi sat alone bewailing the division of the land. He asked his disciples, and I quote, where is Hebron? Have we forgotten it? And where is our Shechem, Nablus? And our Jericho, will we forget them? And the far side of Jordan, it is ours. Every clod of soil, every region and bit of earth belonging to the Lord's land. Is it in our hands to give up even a millimeter? In that state, he said, my entire body shaking, entirely wounded and cut to pieces, I could not celebrate, unquote. When I read this, I thought, God help us. But for now, I was not going to think anymore of Rabbi Cook and his buddy, or of Danny and his fetish with Nettish. I was going to enjoy my walk. Um, thank you very much for that, Raja. And that was a, a typically uh, uh, beautiful bit of writing where you wind telling us uh, uh, about the, the history and the way in which these legal processes are slowly colonizing the land whilst at the same time actually inviting us with you to appreciate the land and the landscape. Um, this book's about walks and walking and um, ever since we first met and we were talking about Bulbul I've been aware because I'm, I also love walking, particularly hill walking. Um, that this is a real passion of yours. When, when did walking begin for you? Well, I must say, my, uh, first of all, all the houses I lived in Ramallah, and I've always lived in Ramallah, overlooked the hills, were overlooking the hills. Uh, but the beginning was not a good beginning, although the hills were always there in, in the uh, foreground, really. I was always looking at these hills wherever I went. Uh, I didn't, I despised the hills. And the reason I despised the hills was because I was influenced by my uh, parents and family, and especially my grandmother. Uh, they had been living in, in Jaffa until 48, and they were forced out in, the, in 48. And so they, very reluctantly they were living in Ramallah and always looking at the horizon uh, towards Jaffa, despising Ramallah and its hills and thinking of them in all negative ways. The only person whom I heard about, but not as a, as a hero, is the man I describe in the book as Abu Amin, who uh, uh, is a cousin of my grandfather. And my grandfather went to study uh, in Cornell and became a judge in Jaffa. So he was very intellectual, very interested in learning. And this man, who was his classmate, uh, became a stonemason and said, that's what I want to do. For six months of the year, he would, sit, uh, he would go to a place called Harrashi which I always heard, and I always wondered, what is this Harashi about? And, and there he would cultivate the, uh, the land uh, and, and live uh, what looked, seemed like an ideal life. And in the first walk, I described Harashi. So uh, only as an adult, after I came back from my studies, and perhaps I was influenced by my studies in literature as well as in the law uh, and the romantic poets uh, and their love of the land, I started walking in the late 70s. And I became very uh, curious to see more of the land. And, and uh, walking is not something very popular in, in the Palestinian society. So uh, I, as, as my human rights work, I, I was one of uh, very few doing it. Uh, so was walking. I was one of the few doing it. And um, there's a concept, though, which, because you, you say it's not part of the Palestinian uh, sort of ordinary uh, 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 sort of psyche, but you, you talk about this concept that really interested me, and it, you come back to it in the book, a concept called Saha. Mm. Um, what is Saha? Uh, I've always heard that people have gone for a Sarha, and a Sarha means going not with a, a purpose in mind, not for a, a specified destination, not for a specified time, just going. 
uh, the, the verb is yisrah, to, to, to just go as the spirit sort of takes you. And I always thought, what a wonderful thing to do. And in a way, each of these walks, six walks, is a sarha, uh, in which I invite the reader to go along with me. And you have also, um, was it Abu Amin who also used to go, or was it yourself? You talk about going on Saha into the mountains. Almost, it almost reminded me of a kind of, almost a spiritual sense of, as you say, not, not having a destination, simply um, letting, it, letting it, it be. Yeah, um, absolutely. That's, that's how it is. And uh, it, I wonder if it connects actually with. Um, there's one of the lines I really liked where you, you reluctantly consult a map. And I thought, it's almost like you don't like maps. Um, and of course, there might be reasons for that, but, but the mapping of the Palestinian landscape is, is an issue for you. Well, I, I, in a way, going by a map contradicts the Sarha, because then uh, your route is, is specified and uh, you know that other people have taken it and there's no sense of discovery. So the ni nicer thing is, is just to go and, and follow whatever tracks and paths you find. But also, you know, you say, I didn't want to use a map. I wanted to, to say, well, well, my uncle went here and there was a stone over there. It was almost as though the landscape, you wanted to inscribe a personal history or a personal yes, approach. Yes, and, and along over the years, uh, more and more of that has happened, and not all of it very pleasant. The place where Penny, my wife and I were shot at, <laughs> and the place where we had a bad encounter, yes. and the place, so, so yes, it's full of such memories. But you know, uh, as I describe in the introduction, uh, we in Palestine have not been left alone, so to speak. The, we, are, we have been cursed by the fact that this is the Holy Land. Yes. So it is, it is in, in the imagination of the, of the West. And we throughout have had uh, travelers uh, come to the Holy Land uh, looking for what they had envisaged it was going to be and not seeing the people there. No. Uh, and. Uh, and uh, I quote from some of the uh, uh, notes that these people took in their diaries, and they couldn't see any beauty in the land. It, it's quite, it's quite amazing. It's quite contrary to, to what the land really looks like. It's, um, it's interesting, this, this process of other people making representations, uh, literary representations, as you describe, um, but also these physical representations in the form of maps. And, and it seemed to me that, whereas in every other culture, a map is a thing that allows you to go out into the landscape and in some way gives you a freedom to explore. In Palestine, maps are actually um, uh, prisons, almost. They, they delineate the land, particularly, and this is perhaps connects with the legal work that you do, which runs like a spine through the book, is that <clears throat> Very early on, you become aware, uh, very early on in the, in the 70s, you become aware of um, Israeli maps, Israeli government and military maps, which document uh, a plan. Um, do you want to describe when you first sort of encountered this, this sense of the plan for settlement of the West Bank? Well, you know, the, the first years of my walks were the, the best years because it was a, a time of discovering and going further and further and feeling that I am discovering new terrain and then encouraging other people and friends to come along and, and they would be caught up with the excitement and many of them have become great walkers mm -hmm. since, so that's something I did at least. Uh, but then in the mid-80s, uh, as part of my uh, work in, in human rights and, and as a lawyer taking uh, land cases, I became fully aware, and it was like a nightmare, uh, that uh, these hills are not going to stay like that, and uh, what I see now is, is not going to be what, what will be there if in a few years. Because by 1980, the Israeli government had published the first master plan for the settlements. And according to that master plan, in six years, by 1986 or 87, they were going to have 60,000 settlers and put m millions into building roads and uh, industrial zones and all of these in the um, central region of, of the West Bank. And the West Bank is a tiny place, 5,900 kilometers only. Uh, and, and now, of course, these many of these plans have been, have been implemented. And we have close to half a million 
uh, Israeli settlers in the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, and, and roads that are so inappropriate because they are highways, really. They, they, rather than follow the contours of the hills, they just massacre the hills. And of course, the reason is, is political, because they advertise these settlements as places where uh, Israelis can live and, and, and commute to, to, as, uh, uh, to their work in Tel Aviv or the coastal region in half an hour. So they need to have uh, as straight roads as possible, regardless of what is being done. So the people who are claiming the love of the land are, are destroying it. Yeah. And as I describe in one of the walks, uh, I am with one of my friends, and we come upon a place which is wet. And uh, of course, uh, this was in the, the dry season, the summer. And we wonder where this water come, came from. Is it a spring? But there are no springs in the area. And then we realize it's a sewage from one of the settlements. They just threw the sewage. And, 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 and that is a repeated uh, problem. There's a constant thing where there's reversals of meaning uh, in, in the book, which is, is fascinating. You just talked about roads. So a road, which in every other place is a, is a, is a, is a, a means by which one travels, a, a, an enabling creation, of course, in the context of, of the, the um, Palestinian inhabitants of the West Bank, roads suddenly become blockages. You can't, places you can't cross, places that, so when a road is built near a, a village, in fact, that blocks the village. It's unable to, to cross this road, to use this road. Some roads are reserved and so forth. Um, similarly, uh, the process of maps and mapping. You, you, you become very aware through the book of, of the, um, uh, the way in which the Oslo process of mapping Palestine into three zones, area A, B, and C, um, is, is a process that, that, that you're, you're very skeptical of as, a, um, as you're working, because you're working legally with, with this. C can you just delineate for us a little bit what, why you felt so skeptical? Because obviously, we, we perhaps naively at the time simply saw a handshake between two politicians and we thought, Oslo, this is fantastic, it's peace. Um, well, you know, uh, uh, it's, it's not exactly the case that Oslo is the reason for these uh, developments, roads and settlements and so on. Uh, Oslo simply facilitated them and did not stop them. So, for example, in the case of the roads, uh, in 1984, they published, they published a road plan, a scheme, for the, uh, changing the entire roads in the, in the West Bank from north-south to east-west in order to connect the settlements to Israel, bypassing uh, Palestinian uh, places. And uh, I, of course, saw this and, and thought this is a terrible thing. And uh, at the same time, it was contrary to the law because uh, it, it wasn't done either through the process, uh, processes <laughs> in, uh, provided for in the law and, and for many other reasons. So I, I took, uh, uh, first of all, a, a case against the scheme itself and then uh, uh, facilitated the creation of a national uh, committee to combat the, the road map. And uh, road map, I said, which is another meaning now, yes. uh, road scheme. Uh, and uh, we encouraged uh, farmers whose, whose land is affected to take cases. And we had no less than 10,000 cases of individual yes. segments of the road, in addition to the general appeal against the. And we were fighting these from 1984 onwards. Mm -hmm. And by the time of the Oslo 1993, the, uh, the Israelis had not, the Israeli government and the military courts to which these appeals went, had not made a decision because they were having a very hard time with it, because it was really mm -hmm. contrary to the law. So Oslo allowed them because, uh, uh, in, first of all, Oslo shifted the, the uh, uh, emphasis to, uh, to other matters and, and made it seem as though there is peace, when it, all it did was repackage the occupation. Repackage the existing situation. Existing situation. Person. Now, somebody like me who always knew that the only way to resolve is not by human rights. I mean, human rights is a, is a possible vehicle mm -hmm. to get things closer, to get better understanding, but it's going to be ultimately diplomacy and mm -hmm. negotiations. And I was extremely happy that the uh, negotiations had started and was part as a participant as a, a legal advisor. And then when the secret negotiations, which I had nothing to do with, of course, mm -hmm. uh, were taking place, and, and I saw the, the uh, Declaration of Principle in 1993, I was shattered. I was mm. literally shattered and, and, and felt that all the work that I have done and all my expectations and hopes for peace were, were, were gone. And at the same time, the, the, the difficulty was that while I felt this, most people felt it was a victory. Mm. So in a way, I'm sorry, I'm going on no, too, no, no, too long. It's, uh... In a way, 
the writing of this book also was my way of getting over the, the, the anger and the shock and, and the... This is what comes across very strongly. And I'm it, glad it does. because It, it's, it, it mm. is. It's, it's mm -hmm. very much... What interests me, in a sense, is the feelings that the book describes. You, 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 at one point, you actually say it's, it was as though you had reached into a corner. You, you were painted into a corner. You, your love of the space, which you've described in walking, was being curtailed and curtailed. And you felt that curtailment coming physically more. And that the law had perhaps been a way of trying to hold on to space. You felt that taken away from you, and that's what the book came from. So I suppose I wanted to ask you about the sense of, does writing about the land somehow allow you to walk in it again, allow you to preserve it from change? What is the relationship between writing about it and actually being in it, if you see what I mean? Well, in a way, uh, by, by writing about it, I can... I, I don't have to uh, continue with the obsessions that I have. I, I can move on to other obsessions <laughs> because I have to have some obsessions. Uh, but uh, uh, the, I, for, the, the process of writing was in order to celebrate the beauty of the land as yeah. well because, yes. because uh, despite everything, it's what it, the land in, in the uh, Palestinian territories is one of the treasures of the world, mm. and this treasure is being destroyed. And so uh, I at least was trying to preserve in words some of mm. the, that beauty, and I hope this comes it across. It comes across extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's lovely sections. I don't know what image you have in your head of the uh, Palestinian territories and these hills. I, I have some image for having been there, but actually not really walking in the hills, as Raja says. It's not always a safe thing to do. But, but the greenness you describe in the wadis and uh, the, the streams and springs, um, the incredible kind of dizzying cliffs and, and these, these ranges of landscape surprise me because, as you say, it's a very small area of land. It's very small but very varied. And uh, as happens when you, when you write, you discover more things because also I had never been interested in particularly in geography or geology. But as I was writing, I became suddenly very interested and started looking into these questions and then realized how uh, the, the geology and, and the formation of the land uh, where there was pressure from the, from the west that kept on pushing until the rift valley was created, which is the rift valley from the mountains in Turkey all the way to Africa. Uh, uh, and, and as a result of that pressure, there were some clefts which created the wadis, some of them quite deep, but then coming, getting to the uh, Dead Sea area and, and the Jordan Valley, making a huge drop. And, and then, of course, we have Jericho and the Jordan Valley, the lowest region in the world. And, and somehow it started all making sense to me. And, and then I was able to incorporate it and choose walks which reflected the, the, the terrain reflected the mood. Yes. Well, that leads me on to my question, in fact. The, the mechanics of this, in a sense, you've chosen six walks. Plainly, you're walking all the time, all through this period. Um, how did you go about if, you know, choosing which walk to, to take, uh, to, sorry, which walk to write about? And, and when you write about them, you wind so many things in. How, what was that process of writing uh, well, for you? Well, I, I, as I said, I've been walking almost for 26 years now. And, and many of these walks that I describe, I've done over and over and over. So even though some of them, some of them have been, or parts of some of them have been destroyed, I have a very good memory of them. I have a very bad memory for names, but a good memory for, <laughs> for the land and images. Uh, so um, I... During the time that I was walking, I always keep a diary anyway. And, and very often after a walk, if there was something special or if there was something beautiful, I would describe it in my diary. So, so that was a, a good thing to, to do. I was able to go back to the diary. And then, of course, each walk takes place at a particular uh, a period in, in, in time. And so I would go back to the diary to remember and to get a, a sense of that time. And then, of course, there were technical uh, problems. Do I start the walk in the time that the walk takes place and, and stop there, or do I end it in the present time? And then I realized, I thought first that it would be more dramatic to have the walks 
start when they start and then at the end I will show what happened to, to the land and then I realized this will not work so each walk begins when it begins so the one in 79 begins in 79 ends in the present and in the process I show uh, what happened to this uh, route uh, this path uh, o over these this period of time it's it's a it's a, a fantastic uh, work of geography in a sense for me and an understanding of the human humanity of ge geography how landscape is is um inextricably bound up with the human representation and perception of it. You, you talk at one point about how someone says to you that every rock, every tree would have had a name to the, at the time when Ramallah was much more of a farming uh, area. Reminded me very much of um, the Hebrides in Scotland where I had an encounter with an elderly uh, lady who said that you know, literally every foot of ground would have had a Gallic name ascribed to it and that these had sort of drifted and drifted and drifted but and so that what you often get is even from cent Scots from the central belt would say oh you know I was in the wilderness the other day and you know or I, I was out in this barren landscape but it's actually a, a landscape which is incredibly uh, peopled. I wondered if you wanted to speak a little bit about the way that Palestine particularly suffers from being an imagined landscape by other people, other people project onto it. Well, uh, uh, of course it does, and uh, I, I, you know, I always wondered. So, so we've had other people uh, who, who who tried to impose uh, their imaginations uh, and their view of the land on, on the land, uh, starting from the British, who, uh, of course, who, who then came and uh, were the mandatory uh, power. Uh, who, who are the source of a lot of our problems, of course, uh, not uh, unusually. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but uh, it was also uh, the, the Zionists who did the same thing and who are still doing the same thing in the settlements. So always I had heard that uh, their claim was they made the desert bloom. And this always surprised me because I thought anybody who has been in the land could not possibly describe this land as a desert. Yesterday I was reading a, a letter by T.E. Lawrence to his mother in 1909, and he describes the Galilee area and the Hule, uh, which has been now uh, drained. And he describes how lush the, the place is. And of course, it's always had uh, lushness and, and uh, orchards and, and uh, all kinds of trees. So it, it couldn't have been. And then I, I read that uh, for Ben-Gurion, uh, before the revival of the Jewish communities, the uh, place was a cultural wasteland. And so it is that kind of a desert. And you see, the problem is there has been that attitude which the, the, the newcomers, because there were always Jews in Palestine, that's, that's not the, the issue. The issue of the newcomers to Palestine who despised and wanted a very particular uh, creation. They wanted a Western uh, uh, creation, a, a state looking like the West. And so they planted the kind of trees that would make it look like Switzerland, and they were not appropriate, a certain kind of pine. They created Tel Aviv in contrast to Jaffa. So, whereas Jaffa had, you know, Jaffa is an ancient city, they created a new city. Fine, it's nice to create sometimes new cities, but it was uh, intentionally meant to be in contrast to, to the to Jaffa. And, and then again in, in the West Bank, in the settlements, they're, they're creating places that, are, that do not work. They, they, they look odd and they destroy the land. It's interesting to me that we spoke a little before when we were meeting to talk about this that the, the land is sometimes called the Holy Land. But what's unusual is that Therefore, by obviously by people of the, of the various different books all around the world are imagining every day this holy land, perhaps not getting the chance, not visiting it. But somehow it, it seemed to me that this book in which you walk in a secular way, you walk just as yourself, looking at the nature around you, looking at it as someone whose relatives have lived in the area, have more, oddly, have more reverence for the land that that in a sense it's, the land's problem is that all the people who think it's holy don't see the land, they see some other land, it's sort of almost like a literary creation on top of it, 
which they're free to mess about with in whichever way they choose. And, and, um, and it seemed to me that um, uh, it was an interesting contradiction in that, that f the book is so much about how writing is a preserver of the land and a creator of space for you, and yet there's another sense in which the writing of other types of books describing the land has, has almost been the cause in some senses of its problem. Um, uh, perhaps that's a good point, to th this sense of competing definitions of who does the land belong to, to invite you to read another little section from the book. This is a, a beautiful section towards the end of the book um, where Raja is walking um, in an area that he really is a little bit anxious about because according to the area B, area C aspects of, of, of mapping, he's not, uh, in, in those terms, entitled to be there. And, he, um, and in this walk, he encounters a young uh, settler who's sitting, smoking uh, uh, dope, is the, is, the, is the implication, um, enjoying a quiet moment in the landscape. And Raja intends, essentially, just to get past him because the settler has a gun and you, you don't quite know what's going to happen. Uh, Raja drops his hat, it's in the stream, and in a moment the, the settler retrieves his hat. Um, so there's a kind of tension between this moment of kindness and also the fact that there's a gun, and in that moment a conversation begins which doesn't necessarily begin easily at all, and I think you take up the story some point shortly after that. He is worried that I will go after the gun, so... <laughs> Uh, so, so then we, we, we start talking. I, I will not start on the beginning of the conversation. Uh, did you know that this land you're on has been declared a nature reserve, he tells me. We are protecting this spot, except for us, it would have been ruined. As a walker, you should appreciate this. I couldn't believe it. I said, you're protecting our land? After all the damage, your bulldozers have been digging highways in these hills, pouring concrete to build settlements. You claim to be preserving this land? No one is allowed to build here anymore, or destroy the paths, or pick wild flowers. Without these regulations, this beautiful spot would be ruined. Let me tell you how things looked when this was truly a nature park, I answered him. Before you came and spoiled it all, you could not see any new buildings. You did not hear any traffic. All you saw were deer leaping up the terraced hills, wild rabbits, foxes, jackals, and carpets of flowers. Then it was a park, preserved in more or less the same state it had been in for hundreds of years. Nothing can remain unchanged for hundreds of years. Progress is inevitable. You would have done the same as we are doing, only you lack the material and technical resources to connect these distant areas to power and service them with water and electricity. Look at the villages here, your fellow Arabs. They still have to fetch their water from the spring. I see them trudging every morning with their heavy buckets. It seems to be a hell of a life without running water. And look at the areas where your people come for picnics further upstream. They're, they are rubbish dumps full of plastic bags and disposable plates and cups and chicken bones left from their barbecues. You lack the know-how and the discipline. Leave planning and law enforcement to us. We have built many towns and cities out of wild, empty areas. Tel Aviv was built on sand dunes, and look how vibrant it is today. The, the same will happen here. God forbid. I love these hills no less than you. I was raised here, he tells me. The sights and smells of this land are a sacred part of me. I'm not happy anywhere else. Every time I leave, I cannot wait to get back. This is my home. I ask him, what do you call this wadi? Wadi Dolev. And the spring, Ain Dolev. After the plane tree, you pronounce it dolev, we say delb. Isn't it glorious in spring? This one in particular. Yes, there was more water this year than ever. 
so unusual for this part of the country. It's very peaceful here. Where are you heading? No particular place. I came to see what is happening to the valley. It's been a while since I walked, I say. I too love walking, he tells me. I do a lot of it around these hills. I held my breath. I wanted to blur out all the cur curses I had ever learned. You, you who've taken my land and now walk it as master, leaving me to walk as a criminal on a few restricted paths. But this time I held my breath. Thank you, Roger. That's lovely and, and uh, very uh, uh, typical uh, of the book and the complications of that encounter where, on the one hand, there's a sharing of the love of the landscape and, on the other hand, an almost complete inability to, to see that the young settler's vision has of the ironies of what he's saying. Ultimately, probably this is the, the best way that it would end, that people who really love the land would come together to, to do something to protect it. But I think that's uh, idealistic at this point. I think that's a good moment uh, to open up for questions uh, from the audience question. Could I ask specifically that we have questions um, and that you're able to keep them relatively brief, please, rather than comments? Um, uh, yes, sir. The, the gentleman asks Raja, what's his favourite walk? What's your favourite walk? In the, in the book, you mean? Well, uh, it depends on the season. <laughs> but uh, I, I was very happy until this, uh, these final years when it became difficult to, uh, to, to do this, uh, to be able to just take off from my house and in a few minutes be out in the, in, 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 in the hills and in a few minutes really begin to feel completely surrounded by, by the hills and uh, without uh, looking, seeing any, anybody, any houses, any roads and without having any fear of anything because the hills are quite, uh, we're always quite safe. Unfortunately, this is no longer possible because the dangers are many and uh, the restrictions are many. Uh, nowadays, I, I I recently, before I came, had a, a rather bad experience uh, walking down with, with, with a woman who's actually from here, uh, down to, to one of the, uh, through one of the walks I described, in, uh, the first walk I described actually. So, <coughs> sorry, so the, the way to walk now is to go with a group of people. And, and, and uh, we, when we do, we, we go farther away from Ramallah. So, it's not the, my, the best way for me. You have to drive and then, uh, and then start the walk. In the past, I didn't have to drive. I just was able to start the walk and come back without using any vehicles, which is, I think, how it should be. I, I, you know, nowadays, also, I've always liked hill walking in, in Scotland. Mm. And, and that's an entirely different experience, of course, and a lovely experience for me. Um, this gentleman here. I now live in Devon and love walking the southwest coastal path and was very surprised to discover last year that Tony Blair likes to do the same and on one occasion did so with the Prime Minister of Ireland, uh, no doubt discussing um, high politics of the Irish problem as they were therapeutically embalmed, if you like, by the, the, the beautiful landscape of cliffs and sea. Given the rather surprising uh, responsibilities of Tony Blair to your country now, do you not think it would be a wonderful idea to invite him to join you on one of your walks? You know, just before I came, I had dinner with uh, people from uh, one UN organization called OCHA, who, who have the duty of observing the changes that are happening. And one of the things that they observe are the changes that result from the building of this wall, which is taking annexing about 9% of the West Bank to Israel. And they took him uh, to see the wall. And, and, and this he had never done. He had visited as prime minister many times. And every time uh, the Israelis make sure that he doesn't see any of the objectionable things. He doesn't go through checkpoints. He doesn't see the wall and so on. So uh, they came back and they said when he saw the wall, his face fell. 
Now, wh what this will lead to is, is another matter. I don't think, I, I don't have high hopes for... Sorry? The gentleman asks where, where you would take him for... Uh, well, if he's a true walker and he, he really uh, appreciates the beauty of the hills, I would take him to one of the unspoiled areas and show him how devastating it would be to destroy this by the continued settlements that are, uh, that are continuing I, all the time. I must say that sp speaking as a, as a walker, some of you may, I don't know, have had the opportunity to visit the West Bank, but it's immediately clear in a way that almost nothing except something like Raja's writing is able to capture that, that um, the settlements you describe, even the word settlement is such a settled, is such a sort of peaceful sounding word yeah. that, that it's almost as though tops of hills have been sliced and well, things... Not almost like. It, it is it exactly is, like. It's, exactly like. it's not yeah. a metaphor. They literally yeah. have been sliced and put on top. And, and anyone who's used to walking in hills anywhere uh, in Africa... I, I've walked in hills in Africa, in Europe and in Scotland. One is aware that humans, as a rule, don't put settlements on top of hills. It, it's somehow very... We put castles on top of hills, but settlements nestle in the arms of hills and underneath and around and there's something that seems it's incredibly um, to take Tony Blair it seems to me it's a very important thing for people to see actually and this, since seeing it is extremely difficult now seeing it captured emotionally in your writing is a really strong way I've spoken again too much Who's, other questions there's a, a, a lady here in the front Could you tell us what the incident was when you were walking down the hill? You just referred to it a minute ago. Mm. Yeah, it was, uh, it was actually a woman who was writing for the uh, Herald newspaper here. And she wanted to write uh, about the book. And she said, why don't we take a walk? So we, so we did take a walk. And, and we went down. And, uh, and she writes about it in, in her piece in the Herald. Uh, we, uh, once we got into the, the wadi, into the valley, and, and settled for to, take, to catch our breath, uh, we uh, had two youngsters uh, masked, and they wanted to know what we were doing, and they uh, were claiming that she must be, they, they wanted to see our identification, uh, identity cards, uh, which of course they have no right to, but uh, we, they, they, were, they, they weren't armed, but they had clubs. And so I showed them my uh, lawyer's card, uh, thinking it would impress them, maybe. It didn't. <laughs> and uh, she had nothing. She had no identification. And they said, she must be Israeli. I said, but you know, she, is, she actually was wearing a cross. Uh, so I, but they wouldn't even know this. So we had to argue. And they said, uh, we, uh, she, she is an Israeli. And, uh, and then we said, no, she is actually uh, uh, English. And they said, oh, the English, they, they are the source of all our problems. We must kill this woman. <laughs> and they said, do you know Belfort? You know, they were youngsters. Do you know Belfort? You know? <laughs> and uh, I said, you know, Belfort is a long time ago. <laughs> so it, 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 it was not pleasant. It was uh, quite difficult. And, and it made me realize I shouldn't uh, go alone. I mean, I never had to worry about this in the past. But now, I, the other thing is I realized what a different world these youngsters are living in from the world that I lived in, and, and how close-minded they are. Again, a reflection of the close-mindedness of the Israelis, so it's a mirror image, which is, which is very sad. I once did a workshop uh, where I, with young people in Palestine, and I asked them to draw, draw I drew like a head shape, and then the, the brain inside the head, and I just wanted to create a little diagram of all the things that are in your head, you know, love, my family, whatever, whatever. And I do this exercise with children, well, not children, but young people around the world. And it, the saddest thing was that I immediately realized that with all of them, the entire head was filled with a thing called the situation. I mean, it was, it, it, that's not true, of course, in the sense that there was love and there was family, but it was that sense of incredible pressure, literally on people's imaginations, that it to, to imagine yourself out of that was an incredible effort. You know, I must also say that uh, uh, so many people are, are growing up without visiting. I mean, I'm talking about Palestinians without visiting these hills. Because when I was growing up, uh, we always took field uh, uh, visits and, and went to various parts of the West Bank and, and walked in the nature. 
uh, or, or at least picnicked or something. And, and families used to do that. And, and so there was at least some familiarity. Nowadays, because of the checkpoints and all the horrors, uh, children are growing up with absolutely no idea. And so one of the things I, I did and did very intentionally was to give a name. I mean, I had to find it out because I didn't know it myself. To every wadi, to every gully, to every escarpment. And, and there are names for all these places, to every spring. Uh, uh, so I, I got help from a geographer who went to the villages and so on. And every place has been given a name. At least in this way, I hope maybe it, it will preserve something. Uh, we have another question. There's a, a lady at the back in blue. Roger. My name's Tom Fairnborough. Oh, sorry. I wonder if you'd uh, have time and the audience too to come down to the map library where I'm fortunate to work to have a look. And the maps of Palestine made by the Israelis and the Palestinian Authority and also under the British and also going away back to the uh, 19th century maps and photographs that we've got which are available for the public to reinforce the points you make as Where all maps that? do. National Library Scotland in Newington, map uh -huh. library. Okay, good. I will do that indeed. I mean, I've seen some of the rich Sorry. maps because, but, but uh, I, I, photographs would be wonderful as well. And the one walk I want you to ask, ask you about, the most important walk maybe, is uh, the walk of the Israeli and the Palestinian, the ordinary people like us, to uh, get them to realise their common interests and their common goals. How is that going to be achieved uh, from your experience? Because otherwise, I'm afraid they're walking to oblivion, unfortunately. So wh what is the way forward for uh, understanding and unity there? Well, you know, I think that uh, Greater Syria, which Palestine is part of, has always been a bridge and uh, has never had a great civilization itself. It has been between the great civilizations of the Euphrates and the Nile, and, and always a bridge between Europe and Asia. And what is attempted now to make it exclusively for one group or the other, you know, or to make it a fortress, not to connect to the region, not to, uh, which is Israel's way, uh, is doomed. Now, uh, by, by when, I don't know, but ultimately it's doomed. And I think ultimately geography is going to uh, uh, take over and, and impose uh, on us uh, what is natural to the place, which is to be a bridge. Uh, and uh, when would the Israelis realize that this drive to exclusivity is, is, is dooming Israel, actually, because, because Israel will not be able to survive uh, because of the support of the United States forever. This, the United States is going to, to stop being uh, the great power that it is, maybe. Uh, and once they see that their interest is not with Israel, they will not support Israel because that's how politics works. So, so that dependence on, on uh, the United States and, and that failure, you know, in a way, the, the, the presence of the settlements in the occupied territories absolutely without any connection to the Palestinian areas is representative of the place of Israel in the region which also is without, I mean, you know, the, the claim is always that the Arabs don't want to recognize Israel. Well, the Arabs, the Arab states have said and declared that they would be willing to make peace, full peace with Israel uh, if Israel would withdraw from the occupied territories. Mm. And then Israel says, ah, yes, no, but, and, and they don't take the offer. Mm. So, so they're not making any attempt to reach out. They think that they can have economic uh, relations with the rich parties in the Arab world and uh, override everybody else. It doesn't work that it's way. It's also interesting, you, you, the term recognize obviously has its diplomatic meaning, but it has a sort of more literal meaning that almost illuminates something there when you talk about whether Arabs recognize Israel, but then at the same time you have the point that these, the settlements in a sense don't physically, don't, are not recognizing their landscape. They're not, there's not a there's literally not a recognition mm -hmm. in a sense that the as we described a sense of invisibility about seeing what you choose to see rather than seeing mm -hmm. what's in front you know of in you. a way i agree with rabbi cook and mm -hmm. when i was reading this i was thinking yes he is somebody i would agree with because the division of the land is bad is wrong if only we can find a way of preserving the unity of the land and resolving the political conflict because it's too small a land to divide and also as you describe I think the encounter with the settler that you describe at the end and there is a little more to it than Raj was able to read in a sense perhaps answers the gentleman's question in that as you say 
there needs to be a situation where two sets of people who genuinely recognize the land upon which they live and genuinely recognize that that land has a human history, a human history that does indeed go back thousands of years, um, until that moment that the two people are talking about different lands. So how can there possibly be a reconciliation? They need to talk about the same one. You know, I must say that the, there are many voices and many groups and many people in, in Israel who, who do not go for what we've been talking about and who, who do not choose to mm. settle, although there are many incentives, economic incentives to settle. I remember in, in, in the early 80s, I was taken uh, uh, on a walk by an Israeli sociologist who was writing a series of articles for one of the major papers, Haaretz, uh, which was uh, walks with various people, Israelis and Palestinians in the land. And, and by the land, he was uh, thinking of uh, Israel and Palestine, the greater uh, pal uh, geographic Palestine. Uh, and, and he has been a peace activist. And, and, uh, and, and like him, there are so many others who, who ascribe to a different set and maybe would agree exactly with what you're saying. But unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, there is a lot of money coming from the United States to the most extremist elements who make it possible, the money makes it possible to build these settlements and to, to create such destruction. And, and these are American uh, Jews who, I don't know what is the reason, but they, they sit there making their money out of uh, I don't know what, and, and, and they don't even come to live in the, in the country, and they send the money and cause us distress. Um, we need to draw to a close. I just want to uh, have a little personal thing from my side. Hello. Which is that um, this winter, uh, any people here who do hill walking will know there was essentially no snow in the Scottish hills this winter. Um, uh, it was too mild a winter, and, and um, uh, this was is it understood to be a consequence probably of global warming. It was a, a, a thing of great sadness to me. It's obviously been happening more and more over the last winters. I particularly noticed that, that, that the ptarmigans, uh, who have a white plumage during winter, were uh, basically being picked off by eagles because there was no white to be camouflaged against. There was no snow. Uh, and I looked out. I went on these walks. I used to love, really, in the 1980s, you would be guaranteed snow all through the winter. And um, I looked out on this landscape of hills uh, from a cottage where I was staying, and, and they were, were green. And, and I felt really sad. I mean, really, really sad. I thought, I, you know, I thought about my children not having the experience of this land in the way that I had. And yet this force that was taking away something I had understood was um, a kind of overwhelming natural force that in some senses we are all responsible for. I, reading this book, I was very reminded of that feeling, the, the, the feeling of something being taken away from you and yet how much more maddening it must be if it's being taken away not by an overwhelming natural force for which all of humanity is somehow responsible, but, but by present day people, individuals, governments, law, uh, 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 diplomats, and so forth, I, I thought I would feel very angry. And, and this is a little piece from the book, which I think explains partly why the book is so good and, and takes that emotion. Raja writes, I cannot, con he, he's in a, on, on a walk and he's thinking about the settlements, the way the landscape is changing and how he has no control or to, to stop this. I, I cannot continue in this state of anger, otherwise it will consume all my energy and I shall waste my life in grumbling and regret. A time comes when one has to accept reality, difficult as that might be, and find ways to live through it without losing one's self-esteem and principles. Was this not what these hermits and monks, who he's visiting a, 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 hermit, a hermitage and monastery, uh, had been doing over the centuries, keeping their distance from the world, holding on to what was theirs as they waited for the tide to turn? whilst all around them that they held sacred was violated. The time had come for me to dedicate myself to a different project, one I could make work, which no one could take from me. Writing, writing would help, me, would help sustain me in this next period, but it was only honest and daring writing that would be able to penetrate the depths that enveloped and paralyzed me now. And that, uh, it was the, the impetus for writing this book, and it seems to me that honest and daring writing is very precisely a description of what this book is. Um, uh, I, I, I've just finished it, it's newly published, um, 
you know, hot off the press, as they say. But uh, it, it really is a, a remarkable piece of work. It's full of emotion, but never, um, never uh, a despairing. It's full of, of um, love of nature, but always acute and never sentimental. I really can't recommend it highly enough. Um, if you would like to uh, 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 buy the book and, and have Raja sign it, then um, we're going to move through to the signing tent uh, in a moment, and um, you will be able so to do. But in the meantime, I'd like you to join me in thanking Raja for such an illuminating talk today.